welcome everybody to a, another edition of the Art Business Podcast. Uh, my name's David Bellingham. I'm Programme Director at the Sotheby's Institute of Art in London, where I direct the MA in Art Business. Uh, my students are actually next Friday about to go out to the European Fine Art Fair, um, followed by um, Reich Museum, Stedelijk, Street Art Museum, etc. in Amsterdam. So they have a, a good, good time there. Um, so my guest today is uh, Rachel Cole, and uh, Rachel Cole uh, is has just um, started a, a an art advisory uh, service that we'll speak about later called Romulus. I'll put the links in the um, in the podcast for you. And her background is um, she studied for a bachelor's in the history of art and psychology at the University of Michigan, and then. Uh, decided to study a master's degree in the history of art at Hunter College um, and I think a, a, another highlight in her well then she moved into into working in in the art world and had various jobs working in galleries I think auction houses and and, and, and art businesses um, and last year she won the uh, she's one of the winners of the 30 under 30 Forbes uh, art and style group uh, for 2022. So congratulations on that, Rachel, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah. And I'd better say now that Rachel is currently in Dubai. <laughs> um, hence, I'm recording this podcast earlier in the morning on in from the UK, and I think it's the early afternoon in Dubai. Yes. And she's there, of course, because of the uh, art fair, which I believe finished yesterday. So we might speak about your experience at the art fair uh, later Sounds in the podcast. But to start with, as ever, what's your favourite city, Rachel, and why? This was a tough one to choose. I would say Paris, of course. It's many people's favourite city. I think for me, um, I studied abroad there, actually, in my undergrad studies. And it was the first time I'd seen the art I studied in real life. And I'm talking these massive paintings by Jacques-Louis David, even the other massive paintings by Corbet. And it was just really interesting to see these works come to life. And I was 21 years old in this city running around with my friends. So every time I visit, which luckily is a couple times a year for work, I'm reminded of just how magical of a place it really is without sounding super cheesy. Um, but I would have to say that is my favorite city. Well, I think, yeah. Um, it's, actually, it's sometimes since I've been to Paris, it's pre-pandemic I was in Paris. Um, just to say a little bit about that, that we used to we used to regularly take our art business students to Paris for FIAC, the, the former contemporary art fair, which, as you know, has recently sort of transmogrified into something else. Um, and um, um we we didn't stop going because we didn't like going um we we stopped going because there was some visa issue it was very early on in the academic year we have a big international group of students some of the students couldn't get their schengen visas into europe in time which just shows how these bureaucratical things can get in the way of you know uh good things so that's a shame but um um have you been to the bourse in paris yet they the the um yeah the, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. They, which is the um the, the pino Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. yeah yeah no that's one that I'm really looking forward to going to um, oh, yeah, <laughs> and, and I guess the other thing about Paris at the moment of course is that we we in our curriculum we speak quite a lot in fact we actually had a whole seminar a couple of weeks ago about 
what are the threats of Paris to, to London in terms of the international art market? And that debate continues, of course. I think most recently there was this scare for the Parisian art market because their government is threatening to put the VAT up to 20% or something, which would obviously be yeah. in favour of uh, of the UK. But we, I think it's a wait and see. But I hope that I hope that we continue to have very good relations with the art world in Paris because it's such a wonderful art centre, as you know. Do you have um Do you have a favourite? Maybe, maybe excluding the obvious Louvre and Pompidou Centre. Do you have any other favourite sort of art locations that you can think of? Oh yes, I love the Musée d'Orsay. I don't speak French, so I butcher yeah. every. I, I should have put but... that one in there as well, shouldn't I? <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah, That's I mean... big three. When I lived abroad, I lived very close to the Pompidou. I think yeah. I was so um, entrenched in the like art history part of it. I didn't really understand contemporary art probably or appreciate it as much as I should have. But the, yeah, the Musée d'Orsay with the old train station and sort of its um, development during the World's Fair. I mean, there were so many things about it. That's just, the collection is also so magical. And when I was last there, there was a massive, Kehende Wiley um, painting, sculpture. I mean, just putting those words in dialogue with the with the permanent collection was unbelievable. And of course, the the commercial galleries in Paris for both, uh, you know, French old furniture right through to contemporary, amazing place to visit. Uh, you know, uh, as is London and New York. Um, for the commercial galleries London. London was a close second for me by the way yeah. in terms of favorite city I do have to say I love London um, I love the art scene there I love that it's a little bit more centralized and yeah, yeah I am curious to see what ends up happening with the Paris versus London in terms of like the western art market but as you said we'll just have to wait and see Absolutely. Interesting. Always something always interesting going on every day in this in the art world. Um, so moving, if you had to choose like a, a, a non-urban location that you love, it could be, you know, by the by the ocean or or in the middle of the countryside. Do you have any places like that? I do. I do. Um, one place in particular called Stourhead. It's in Wiltshire. It's about two hours um, southwest of London. Have you been? I see you yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's the um, now. Let's get this right. It's I think it's a national trust property, and it's very much based on a lake with hilly woods around it, with like classical follies. Yes, exactly. That is exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible. I've been twice, so during two different seasons, two different years. It's my favorite place probably ever. And um, I, yeah, I'm actually, I, I know we'll get to this, but I'm actually writing my thesis on it. Wow. On so I've um, studied Ooh, it. Can't wait to get to that. <laughs> because I, I, um, I think I know what the way you might be studying it, but I'm not going to preempt that discussion. So let's wait and see. All right. I can't wait. The other thing about Starhead and one of the, one of the reasons I've been to it a couple of times recently is because um, of Hauser and Worth is nearby. So there's mm -hmm. Worth, yeah. the commercial contemporary gallery that has its famous rustic location um, yeah. near Stourhead um, in Somerset and at Bruton. So it's literally 20 minutes drive from there. So whenever I go to Worth, I usually pop over to Stourhead. So you're getting the contemporary with the um, classic at the same time. Oh, absolutely. I The first time I actually went to Stourhead, I made the mistake of going only for a few hours 
Mm. I didn't realize exactly how big it was. So I had gone to the Hauser and Worth breakfast during freeze at Somerset, took a taxi to Stourhead and then had a train a few hours later. And I just was overwhelmed, obviously. But um, but that is always a very good combination is the Stour. Yeah, the all of the Hauser and Worth properties are incredible, but Stourhead or sorry, Somerset is particularly nice. <laughs> and so is the Roth Bar and Grill where you had your breakfast. Oh, yeah. At, at Hauser and Worth. <laughs> it's a cool place. Um, one of my alumni, actually, I haven't done a podcast with her yet, Dea Vanigan. She, uh, she's on maternity leave at the moment, I think, but she, um, she became their, uh, sales director. Um, so hence the links with, you know, we take the students there quite regularly. It's a Very difficult cool. place to get to though, with a lot of people. It's okay. You know, if you're on your own in a car or on a train, it's quite difficult with a big group in a coach. Um, but in a lovely part oh, yeah. Side. I mean, I, so it also <laughs> reminds us that there are places outside of the city where the art world is actually very, very dynamic. You know, you've got Stourhead as a kind of classic heritage property, and then you've got Hauser and Worth as an international sort of, you know, contemporary, modern contemporary, you know, art center. Absolutely. And in terms of difficult to get to, I also have been fortunate enough to visit their property in Menorca, <laughs> which is actually on an island within the island of Menorca and it is planes trains and automobiles it is difficult to get to but well worth the visit lucky you I think the first um the first gallery I went to commercial gallery that is now very very well known wasn't quite so well known at the time was um was Limoncello in San Gimignano in Italy um which was um which yeah, which is which is kind of like, you know, it's in a tiny little piazza right outside the main centre at San, San Gimignano. So um, anyway, um, do you have a favourite building, Rachel? Well, I love all the buildings on Stourhead's uh, property, if that counts, especially the Temple of Apollo. But um, favourite buildings otherwise, I love buildings from antiquity, uh, a little bit more contemporary buildings. I love these sort of homes or estates that have been transformed into housing artwork, whether that be Somerset House holding the um, 154 Fair, the Walls Collection, love those sort of snapshots into the past within the homes. But here in Dubai, I'm really loving the Burj Khalifa. It is pretty spectacular. I just made a big mistake there. It's not Limoncello, it's Continua, <laughs> the gallery in San Gemma. Oh, okay. I, I was just, I was there's just a Continua of... here too, I think. In yeah, the, yeah, yeah, it's expanded. In the, I thought, in I the other verge. Um... I was thinking Italy and Limoncello, which is of course Sorrento, where, the, where it started okay. the, the liqueur. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just unashamedly saying apologies for that a correction. Of course, I mean Continua Gallery in San Jim, which when I went, it was just a tiny little gallery. Um, you know, I'm probably talking early, uh, I don't want to make another mistake, I'm probably talking sort of like early, very early millennium. And then it then it uh, started appearing at big art fairs and, you know, had a great brand and, uh, you know, now has centers across the world. But I'm very jealous that you've been to Menor to the Menorca House <laughs> Worth. I mean, it was, and it was, the show was one of my favorite artists, Rashid Johnson. So. All of it was just spectacular, start to finish, and it was a beautiful, intimate dinner. If you can, if you just happen to be in, I guess Spain, or I mean, we, yeah, 
highly recommend. Yeah. And so um, are you into any music? Eclectic? Yeah, yeah. I love music. Um, yeah. I love all kinds of music. Mm. I'm not, you know, particular to one genre or another. I, I think that throughout my life, I've sort of been attached to one, you know, during a specific period of time, whether that's like rap or hip hop or rock mm. and roll or classical music. But when I'm studying or working, classical, of course, always. And I've gotten really hoping to learn more about that too. Obviously. It's very interesting, Rachel, because I think you're you're probably the first person that has talked more about, particularly as a young one of the younger um, guests that you that are talking not just about hip hop, etc., um, pop music, yeah. but also also about classical. We don't often get that. So that's quite interesting. Sometimes I I worry that people aren't being exposed to the classical music as much as they used to be, but there you go. And I guess you, I guess that conforms with your architectural artistic tastes with Stourhead and so on, which is like obviously 18th century sort of neoclassicism, Palladianism and and so on. Exactly. 100 percent It it definitely relates to that. I think again, just the sort of snapshot in time. Um and I love it because it it has its own history. And the woman I'm actually traveling with here, she works in music. So we talk a lot about music history and how there is that correlation between art movements and, and music movements almost exactly um, within time starting in the, I think it's the high Renaissance, but mm. either way, I love classical music. I mean, Amadeus is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> so I know that that cannot be my like sole form of education and, and <laughs> understanding, but I'm excited to learn more. I was over the weekend. I downloaded this uh, recent movie, Tar. I don't know if you've heard about that with Kate Blanchett. She won a yeah, award. you know I have. But that, that I'm just bringing that into the discussion because that that you know for listeners as well. It, I think it's quite controversial. But basically, in a nutshell, it's about a woman conductor called Tar. Um, Kate played played by um, uh, Kate Blanchett fantastically. Um, it's quite an intellectual film. She does a lot of talking about music and how, what you know, the, the political status as it were of the conductor. Are they dictatorial or are they democratic? And that leads into lots of other sub themes in the film. Um, and she's she's at the end of recording a Mahler symphony series. So Mahler is one of my favourite composers, and she's about to the, the last one she's about to record. Uh, um, the pandemic interrupted is the uh, the fifth symphony, and she's in Berlin. And that's another great center of, uh, you know, musical activity and a musical tradition, of course, the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, so no, I, I just wondered whether you'd seen that. It's because it's a very, very interesting film, I think, about women, you know, in a traditional male role as a as a conductor, mm -hmm. often with very, very, you know, um, mainly men <laughs> in the orchestra. And it it plays on all sorts of very, very interesting, you know, tensions. But it's a great, it's also a great film if you're into classical music. I guess that was my main point. Amazing. I have to, I mean, I'm so behind on so many things I have to watch, apparently. <laughs> but um, that, that's just moved its way up up the list. I'll tell you that. Um, and um, and then 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 I guess from music, we've got Obviously, the, the last question here is about arts, whether you have any early memories of art as something um, different from, you know, other things and, and how you got into art. How I got into art. Um, 
I didn't, um, I actually didn't really grow up. I grew up around art. Like I had, you know, a little bit of art in my home. My parents weren't collectors. They just bought what they liked. And I, you know, I didn't really go to museums growing up. I really wasn't, you know, that much of an academic at all growing up. And so I think my first memories of art was art in my home and how I got into it um, was in college. I was minoring in Spanish, was majoring in psychology, as I mentioned, and I thought I wanted to maybe minor in film because I do, I really love film as well. The class wasn't for me. I ended up going to the classroom across the hallway, sat down and it was 19th century French painting class and it changed everything for me. But early memories of art, I mean, I think I just, my parents are also both artists. It was something that was, um, or my father's a musician, my mother's a painter, you know, all hobby when I was growing up, but it was always just something, um, something special. But if you had told me, you know, 20 years ago that I would be an art advisor working in the art world, I would be shocked to hear that. Yeah, same here. <laughs> exactly the same story. I mean, I started off as a kid. It was the it was Latin at school, leading to an interest in Roman and then wider classical culture, and then eventually doing a PhD that took me to Pompeii to study there. Uh, absolute love of that culture, um, and and then <laughs> and then getting into teaching classical classics, classical studies, and then moving to Sotheby's Institute of Art, teaching classics and classical art there. Suddenly, one day, someone coming in, my director coming in, saying. Uh, we got a problem. Our director of the MA on art business is, is 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 leaving at Christmas. Can you take over just temporarily? And I, I got into that and stuck my heels in. It was just so exciting. And this is the world that you're now living in, Rachel. And it's such a. I, but but we're not unusual. Lots of people I speak to in the art world have similar stories, which is nice. I think it is nice. It's like I can't remember a period of time without art because it's so all-consuming now, and every single thing I do from work from building my new company to opening my Instagram to reading to watching things like it art is so entrenched in my life I can't remember a time without it but then I know for a very 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 long time there was no part of the art was not even a, a discussion um actually one more early memory I have because this is a great story I was in high school visiting Spain with my father and my best friend at the time who was living there and we were teenagers, so we slept in and, you know, didn't care. My father woke up early, went to the Picasso Museum, and he's a musician, and he said that it was the most inspiring moment of his adult life, essentially, it was going into that museum, seeing that level of mastery. Obviously, if you're looking at Picasso, you're looking at, you know, such a range of work and um, interpretation and development um, within one single being. And he took that and ran with it. And I remember, obviously I'd never made it to the museum. Obviously I didn't care about art at the time, but hearing that, I was like, this is some, this is something interesting. I, I thought art was just art. I didn't understand how much it could affect other areas um, of, life really um yeah no that's that's a, that's a great story um I'm, I'm just thinking of an equivalent it just rings a bell in my head when I was little 
my parents took me to Spain for a beach holiday. That's what everyone was doing in those days. And um, we we there was a little coach tour to go to a bullfight of all things. I was about 12 year old boy and I was kind of quite curiously fascinated by this thing, this bullfight, you know, and I, I thought that's be something to tell my friends when I get home. Um, and um, but it was in this little town called Figueras, which might ring a bell. This is where the Dali, I think Dali's home was there and there's a Dali museum. And I remember that we went in there and for some, you know, we we went to the <laughs> really weird thing. We went to the Dali museum before the bullfight. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I, I remember that kind of that was so strange because like when I was a kid, there was no social media there were you know it was just books and you just you know I lived I didn't live in central London so it, it was it would be difficult to see someone like Dali in real life basically is what I'm saying you know um not much exposure in galleries at that time um we didn't really go to galleries to be honest um that came later for me so so but I do remember going and seeing these Salvador Dali's and being that you know that, that etched in my memory this kind of weird sort of stuff that oh what it's kind of affected my my understanding of my definition of what art is I guess I thought oh, is this is, is this is art is it um and of course surrealism is is coming up big in the art market again at the moment so last year I think it doubled it, the the auction sales in surrealism according to some recent reports so that's something to watch out for this kind of I think I think a lot of the interest is coming from new buyers like Asian buyers and um and millennials and Gen Z really get I can see why they might get into that because if you think of digital media you can see how that is so easily manipulated into something surreal I guess that's very interesting <laughs> I yeah. love drawing those comparisons um, yeah. you know I for example I think at least what I'm placing in terms of more emerging mid-career younger artists that are producing work post-pandemic I guess we can safely say post-pandemic um, I, you know, I see the work as being almost entirely now abstract and that's what people are looking for and that's what they're craving and that's what's being produced. And, you know, it does remind me of sort of going back towards, you know, post-war art where there was a lot of death during the pandemic. There was a lot of racial injustice. There was a lot that was brought to light and, um, a lot of hatred developed, whatever you want to say it was. And I think that the thought of painting bodies once again, like it was after World War II, is just not, it's just not of interest. And I think it's sort of like we need to um, dive deeper, paint the, yeah, paint the, the subconscious and not focus on human beings for a little bit. Interesting. And that sounds as though it's coming out of your interest in psychology, the way you kind of read all that stuff <laughs> <It comes> <laughs> mind you I noticed that I, I was following a sale the other day I can't mm, was it Christie's contemporary sale in London and there was a Marlene Dumas painting of a body bag and I thought is that gonna sell and it did quite well you know reasonably well so you know this thing about bodies I guess it worked kind of but works both ways really maybe it can be seen as quite cathartic after something like the pandemic to have art about death as well and more figurative art who knows the lovely thing yeah. about the art world Rachel as you know is that you these things play against one another so you you get these oppositional forces at work um so you, yeah. you will get surrealism coming back in for the reasons that you're saying but you might also get a, a fascination in the body coming back in who knows <laughs> The body. Um, <laughs> it's like, the, like the Jericho where he would paint like the like the 
the morgue body parts to prepare for Rats of Medusa. Very grim. I like there's a whole tradition of that, isn't there? But right back to Leonardo and probably in the classical world, you could probably find an example. Um, so educational subjects, um, you, 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 I didn't realise you'd majored in psychology, but what made you maybe take the art history as a minor and then decide to jump across psychology into art for, for masters? Yeah, so I was entirely psychology and Spanish. Art history wasn't even... Not oh, even sorry, I thought you'd done art history as BA. Oh, no. So, well, oh, yeah. when yeah. I decided art history, I'd taken that first class, which um, was incredible. It was with mm. um, Professor Lay. And I was thought, I'm going, I'm going full force. I'm going to double major. And I remember I was deciding where to study abroad. I decided on Paris and, you know, really dedicated my time to filling all those credits because I had already essentially completed a degree in psychology. And... A minor in Spanish. So now I just really had to put all my effort junior and senior year into um, art history, which was incredible. But what made me decide to go full force? I I did research uh, in psychology um, in New York, where it was a very intense sort of door-to-door interview, recruitment, looking at um, previously incarcerated adults and the stress levels of their children. So this was very dark and it was difficult because for various reasons, sort of bureaucratic red tape, whatever, we couldn't actually help anyone. We were just collecting information and saliva samples to prove a point that we all knew, which was, yes, of course, these children have higher you know, cortisol levels because they're watching their parents get arrested. Um, so it was very discouraging to not be able to do anything from that, to be able to talk to young children that have, you know, drug problems, suicidal ideation, whatever it might be, and then we hand them a a hotline number. So that was very difficult for me. And I also think that weirdly enough translates into why I started advising, because I think me working within a bigger institution is just not really my thing. Um, As much as I would have liked it to be, I think that if I see something and there can be something done about it, I really like to go full steam ahead and work to make a change, which is what I'm doing with my company, which is what I do with advising every day. But uh, back to how did my interest in art develop with that? I just use psychology as something entirely separate from art history. I knew that if art history didn't pan out, and I'll be honest, I didn't know any options of careers in art like history after having an art history degree not being an artist whatsoever I thought okay auction house okay museum okay no one really told us what our options were we just had these emails about internships that we knew were very prestigious that we should apply to so my psychology degree was in both clinical and developmental psychology which meant that I could do research I could pursue a higher education and do counseling, whatever it might be. And then um, art history was just completely separate. But as we sort of talked about, they definitely converge at various points, whether it's understanding the psychology of the artist, of the collector, um, of, you know, the institutions I'm working with, whatever it might be, having that background has helped me tremendously. Yes. And you were going, I think you were going to speak about your dissertation on Starhead. 
Sorry. You were going to speak about your dissertation on the, the research on Stourhead. Oh, yes, back to Stourhead. So that's for my this master's. Part, this was your master's dissertation. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, yes, I'm only halfway finished. I will finish it one day. But undergrad was 19th century and then master's is 18th century. So I wanted to go back further in time. And I wanted to understand, you know, how did we get to Manet? How did we get to Impressionism? How did we get there? So 18th century, I look at Stourhead specifically because I love um, the way in which that particular place is sort of the convergence between various subjects within the 18th century. So whether that's neo neoclassicism to Rococo, um imperialism colonialism uh landscape sort of genres or concepts and the writings of um Edmund Burke and William Gilpin uh the influence of antiquity of course and empire um these excavations at Pompeii I know you obviously know a ton about these I'm trying to think what else but I'm using this essentially as a guide to go through many of those topics because the owners and developers of the property throughout the mid to late 18th century, various parts, various bits of those subjects um, are, are very much a prominent point within its development. So the paper is about Stourhead, but it's not doing what previous um, academics have done, which is compare the landscape to a Claude Lorraine painting or whatever. It's these sort of um, academics arguing with each other about interpretation, what I'm doing instead is placing it within its context in order to teach people about this century, why it's so important, how it defines a lot of art collecting, production, everything along those lines today. And a lot of what I want to do is teach. And I think that this is a, a good way to start because it's something that people can digest. It's a, you know, it's a place. Yeah, maybe we could just unpack that a little bit further. I guess, I guess, can may I ask you just for the reader's sake, just in a just very briefly to to describe, because I think it's really, really unusual, a place like so if anyone who's never been to like an 18th century is much more about the garden for a start than the house, a lot, a lot of these places, although they are connected. I was walking through Chiswick Gardens and Burlington House yesterday, which is a similar period and has similar ideas between the classical building and the and the classicism, which is extended into the garden um, and eventually becomes wilderness, you know, deliberate wilderness. So there's this beautiful sort of structuralist way of looking at this, where we're looking at binary oppositions between culture and nature and the way the garden becomes like, uh, a, a lemen, a threshold between total wildness and irrationality, um, and the house, which is the opposite, which is where you're cultured and rational, etc. But could you describe for the listeners, maybe in your subjectively, in your words, you know, when you get to Stourhead and you walk round, you know, what do you see? Just give us a little kind of tour so that we can imagine this place. Wow, uh, I mean, yes, it is. So the last time I was there was in October. So keep in mind it's entering into autumn or very much in autumn actually. Um, so when you get there, it it is like a maze. And what we talk about this sort of unkept landscape that is actually obviously very well thought of 
to the point where each hill was created. It was um, completely rendered and, and thought out in a in an artificial way. But when you get there, I mean, it's massive. It is like so big. The the paths to get anywhere, whether it is this Neo-Palladian home um, built by Colin Campbell, that was the original structure um, or the first thing being built on the property. And then you get to the, the lake, which is, I want to say one or two miles in um, circumference. And you basically just are having this experience where you're seeing these buildings that look like it is the Pantheon in Rome that looks like it is, well, one of them looks just like the Temple of Apollo at Baalbek in Lebanon. And you have this experience of turning a corner and then you see out of the corner of your eye, a structure in the distance that looks like something made um, during the ancient Roman empire. So it is a surreal experience because it's so big, it's so serene. You have no idea where you are or when you are, I think is the most important thing about it. Even today, it being owned and you know very well preserved by the National Trust, it just completely transports you in time and place to this sort of Arcadia, this um, fabricated, that's, that's another thread, that's another chapter. <laughs> this, um, this imaginative sort of, um, heaven-like place on earth that is unspoiled or untouched by modern modern day modern man but really I could try to explain it I mean it is overwhelming it is so beautiful every building every part of the lake looks different from various um, vantage points my favorite view is up at the temple of Apollo because you look down on the whole lake you see reflections of the buildings in the water I mean it's well, I guess people can Google images, but going is an entirely different experience. And it was I like, to... sorry, I was just going to say it was like when I went to Paris for the first time and saw these paintings on a large scale. Mm. Isn't it? What's amazing, as you say, though, and what that's what I, I, I that's what you put across to the listeners is it's such a strange, you know, this is an unusual experience, I think, an unusual cultural experience. And I think it was intended to be in the 18th century. I don't think it's unique. There are other places that were doing similar things where where you're basically the grand, I, presumably your research, your dissertation, you said that it, the study of Stourhead and its themes helped you to understand the production and consumption of art, of, of, art, of other arts and decorative arts in that 18th century period. Is that am I right in saying that? So it becomes a paradigm. It's the, the what's happening in the experience at Stourhead becomes like a paradigm for other 18th century ideas. So I'm thinking, yeah, for example, sure. about you. You know, you said that there's not just the Pantheon in Rome, but there's the um, the Temple of Apollo, the Temple Apollo of Bec, which we know uh -huh. that 18th century, some 18th century lucky grand tourists were able to get into the Eastern Mediterranean and look at ancient buildings cool. there. So yeah. and that idea comes into like um Robert Adams architecture he also got out to places like Split in former Yugoslavia and did drawings and brought so there was a lot of eastern Mediterranean like Greek ancient Greek stuff coming back in which of course previously there hadn't been because it was all Rome and Italy um but am I right in saying that 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 creates a paradigm starhead for understanding other aspects of the 18th century world of collecting and production so I mean of course I, there was 
you know, massive influence on art, especially 19th century, the sort of, you know, romantic art. But I think more for me, I think understanding Stourhead helps us understand today. Mm. That's more what I'm saying. That's not my thesis. That's not anything. I'm just saying that's why I'm providing this context because understanding that century where so many important things happen, whether it's the development of art history, archaeology, art collecting, the first museum, like there were so many things that defined the art world and the art ecosystem that we now use today. And the only way to understand that, I think, is to to unpack that within, yeah, a place, a place of beauty, more beautiful than any painting, someone said. <laughs> And of course, one of the things you didn't speak about, which is a theme at Stourhead, if I remember rightly, because a lot of this is based on the ancient Roman poet Virgil and his epic poem, The Aeneid, um, where Aeneas yeah. most famously to us, today, I think that probably the best read book in the contemporary world, uh, for example, recently translated by Seamus Haney before he died, he did a translation. It's the book book sits of the Aeneid, where Aeneas famously goes down into the underworld, and there are underworld themes I seem to remember in Stourhead, where you go down underground and then you come back up again. So there's this notion of death and life, and is there life after death? I think that comes into the experience. For sure. I talk a lot about this sort of, I mean, a lot of this has to deal with life and death and this sort of social transgression because these, this family was like nouveau riche. They were bankers. They weren't landed gentry by sure. any means. And so the, the Ovid, the, the Virgil's, the Aeneid. So it's Ovid's metamorphosis and Virgil's, the Aeneid are two um, poems heavily talked about. And this yeah exploration of death the main the main uh, man his name's Henry Horror he faced a lot of death in his life and I absolutely think that's a, a subject worth noting and this is what a lot of scholars talk about but my takeaway is it actually has to do more with posterity and building something to be remembered because we all the sort of like yeah memento mori more so than it is like as all these other academics argue this means this of course I definitely think it was meant to hint at that but i think if this man want the man who built it if he wanted us to know what it meant he would have absolutely let us know what it meant that's interesting so it's playing on a kind of ambiguity it's not being didactic it's doing what great art always does including great art today in my opinion it lets the listener it lets the viewer uh, decide for themselves you enter a dialogue in with the art and you can come out and read it in one way or another uh, it remains slippery um <laughs> and uh, that, that's just such an it's just so interesting to hear hear that you're that you're thinking that you're studying something so old and so 18th century and for a lot of like my young students don't I don't know whether it's you know they haven't really studied that sort of classical past and I'm not quite certain they kind of get it but I it's lovely to hear someone like you saying that there's so much richness to be experienced in understanding that I think <laughs> and then yeah. applying it to the contemporary world um so moving on to um to your career Rachel you've been art advising <clears throat> since 2017 you've already hinted to us and the listeners that one of the reasons you wanted to become an art advisor is because you 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 didn't you you wanted you you felt a greater um, purpose maybe in working more personally more individually with people than in a than in a team in a business where there's bureaucracy um, and you kind of you can kind of lose control of the individual maybe that I, d I don't know whether but but um, 
what led you to start in art advisory and then what do you hope to contribute moving forward from art advisory maybe maybe you could say more more about the origins of the art advisory yeah absolutely i'll keep this um this part quick but i worked at I interned at the Guggenheim, at Christie's. I was worked at an, an art gallery in Los Angeles that no longer exists. I was director by age 22. I was doing a lot of sales and I ended up, uh, the gallery was closing. We were leaving. So me and the woman who worked there just started art advising and a, like art advising in air quotes because it was originally very transactional. It was oh, you want this Warhol print? We can find this Warhol print. So it was absolutely sourcing and placing. And my academic background had prepared me slightly, but not, you know, I've learned obviously a lot more since beginning my master's, but we then started understanding the contemporary art market and primary market acquisitions and working with collectors intimately. So a lot of my collectors then are similar to my collectors now where they, um, are very involved in collecting and they just need help, whether it's sourcing. And now it has to do with making their collections the best they can be, you know, more inclusive of uh, various types of artists throughout history in the present day. And I now in my current advisory practice, I, again, it sort of fell into my lap. So I wasn't like one day, I'm going to start an art advisory and here's what I'm going to do for the next 15 years. I was 23, 24 years old. So I had no idea really what I was doing. I just knew that this was something I really liked, whether it was selling, um, finding, and then negotiating. I really love the business side of it. And then now I do a lot of that, of course, for my collectors, but being able to give input as to what their collection should holistically look like is super important to me. So I think without going back to the 18th century too much, um, a lot of what I look at, you know, the 18th, early 19th century is this sort of, um, again, not getting into this too much, but this concept of like collecting what there is to collect you know, with, within antiquity, there's this concept of whiteness. And I think that, you know, in terms of the art history canon has obviously been tremendously skewed in terms of inclusivity and representation. I'm half Mexican, I'm Jewish, I'm a woman. I don't, I, you know, if I did go to museums, I certainly didn't think that there were people like me on the walls. Um, I certainly never learned about that. So I think that so much of what I do now and what I hope to do going forward is continue to place historically marginalized artists. So I consider this women, people of color and LGBTQIA artists into more public and private collections. And in doing so, my goal is to make art collecting more inclusive as well, transparent and seamless because as I mentioned, I like working alone because I am really about accountability and I work very hard. I make sure that my collectors get exactly what they need. If I offloaded that to someone else, can I be certain that everyone's getting the exact care that they need? No. So I think that accountability is key in our industry and it's something that people are really um, 
that our industry is really lacking at the moment. May I ask, um, you, you spoke about marginalized, traditionally marginalized groups, um, which kind of can overlap with your own uh, background. Um, may I ask, are you, are you therefore both sourcing work from people from, like artwork from people from those groups, but also sourcing it very often for collectors who are in those groups or or or, or are they just people who sympathize with those groups or are you kind of hoping to target people that might come from those groups so you're kind of dealing with marginalized collectors and marginalized artists i 100 percent. right now i um <clears throat> i work with a small handful of collectors and those collectors are considered, you know, considered under the umbrella, most of them of as people of color, non-white. And I think that <clears throat> my goal, of course, is to have art collecting be as inclusive as possible, have um, maybe certain demographics of people that weren't, you know, so easily able to collect art, have that be a more seamless transaction, 100%. Um, I also think that, you know, uh, wait, what was I just about to say? <laughs> Sorry. 100%. And I think that right now what can be done is creating visibility for these artists in the ways in which the small bits of change can happen immediately. Interesting. And may I ask, um, I think it's pretty meaningful to me, and I think I know what your answer is as a classicist, but why did you call your art advisory to Romulus? Now, well, now I'm nervous because I feel like you're going <laughs> to have some notes. Which I look forward to. Um, so I, I read this great, book. I think it's a great name, by the way. I, it's just, obviously, it might have different significance to myself than other people. I, I'm so excited to hear yours. Okay, so <laughs> I heard, I read this book called Possession by Erin Thompson, I believe is her name. Have you, okay. have you oh, you with... No, 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 I don't know. I'm just making a note oh, of it. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. It's fantastic. It traces um, the collection, you know, of basically works from antiquity from the origins, which, you know, she really says for better, or for worse, are the Romans collecting Greek artifacts, which we would, you know, consider art up until modern day, why there are people at auctions that are crazed and need this bit of history. Yeah. And then, you know, throughout that time, whether it was like the Pope's collection, the ways in which collecting works from antiquity and this possessive need have sh shifted over um, centuries. And then I also took a course at Hunter with Professor Dye. And my takeaway was that Romans were really the first art collectors, um, for better or for worse. Um, however, we might really define that. I know that, you know, that might not 100% be true, but I think Romulus having discovered Rome, Romans having discovered art collecting, sort of draws this important parallel to the empire ecosystem of the art world today and the ways in which I plan to revolutionize and reinvent it. So I think um, it has a lot to do with connecting the past to the present, as I talked about a little bit, but um, yeah. What, now that's... what do you think? I want to hear. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, and, and of course, Romulus, Romulus, bit like Cain and Abel's story in the Old Testament you know he killed his brother Remus to start Rome which is something that always fascinates me and they've also found um, archaeology is found on the Palatine Hill in Rome they have actually found slight Iron Age circular foundations for huts 
which is exactly the apparently dated carbon dated to exactly the right time when traditionally Rome was founded in um, 753 BCE, I think it was. Same coincidentally, the same date that the Olympic Games further east in Greece started, which is always really it's one of those weird coincidences, if you like. Yeah. And of, course, of course, Romulus is interesting to me because he politically later on he's used as a reference, almost becomes like a mythological trope for mm -hmm. the difference between a democracy and a, and a monarchy. And 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 uh, when the Emperor Augustus became emperor. After, you know, a Republican system where you have two consuls elected annually, as you know, uh, with a deliberative Senate, and then there's civil wars developed because of the problem with having two powerful men with armies behind them, they're going to fight one another and disagree. Uh, and out of that, of course, comes a constant, what most modern scholars see as a constitutional monarchy, the Roman Empire, under Augustus, who that wasn't his real name, but one of the names that the Senate wanted to give him was Romulus. And the histories say that he refused to be called Romulus because it sounded too monarchic, uh, you know, too much like a monarchy, which they did. And of course, they did spelled the, the Etruscan monarchy, which had mm. become corrupt. We all know those stories about the Tarquins. They expelled them to create the Roman Republic. So that it was quite interesting. They wanted to call him Romulus because he was starting again, you know, building a new Rome. But he just didn't like he didn't like the, the kind of monarchic uh, connotations of that. So I actually it's a remember. really interesting, it's not just the name of a legendary figure, it becomes part of a discourse about democracy and authoritarianism, you know, totalitarianism later. <laughs> well, <laughs> really okay. to but anyway, it's a good name for a, for a, for the art advisory. I'll have to unpack that a little more <laughs> my, on my end. But for me, I wanted, you know, because it is, it is a startup, I wanted it to be something easy to remember. I wanted it to be something that, um, it was something that resonated with me that I could talk about and hopefully really at the end of the day is draw modern day collectors. You know, a huge mm -hmm. part of it is education. So I think yeah. learning about, okay, what well, we want to call the start of, um, or one of the starts of, of civilization and art production being that time. So, Absolutely. And I, I think you're right, by the way, I think the most people would agree that the Romans were the first kind of art collectors in our modern sense of the world. word. People like Cicero, who have an art advisor like yourself, yeah. based in Athens, yeah. and he's, we got his letters where he's writing and saying, I can't wait till you get these works to put in my villas. Um, I think I think there certainly was earlier, there's evidence of collecting in the Near East, um, but, yeah. but it's not collecting on, it, it's collecting things... Um, yeah, and there are collections in treasuries of temples, of course, that can be seen as collecting. But it's a kind of sacred thing there, really. And I think certainly our modern idea of art collecting it, it is the Romans who begin that. You're quite right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The, um, I notice in the launch of Romulus, which is literally only only is it just happening now the launch of Romulus as a company it'll be in the next few months um we're yeah. going to so it's under, undergone a few iterations but the first sort of group of beta testers will be sometime in the next month or so and then after that a few weeks and we're hoping for May good 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 and did you did you prepare a business did you write a business plan for oh yes Yes, you've done all that. Oh, no, I'm, just, I'm just finishing off marking of my students' business plans. They have to do a business plan on some, you know, oh. that's, that's, it's quite interesting. Um, 
I noticed that one of your focuses is on art logistics. Um, yeah. is, can you? That, that's quite interesting. Can you explain what made you to, to decide to focus? It sounds as though it's a particular focus of your art advisor. Is that to differentiate yourself from other art advisors? Yeah, so Romulus and Rachel Cole Art Advisory are different. Rachel Cole Art Advisory will use Romulus and okay. will other art advisors. So Romulus is three parts. There are three central focuses. One of them is this sort of logistics and communication, because I think, you know, people listening to this may not realize if they are art collectors or not. The process of collecting art is very confusing. There's a lot of back and forth. It seems pretty chaotic. You're getting emails, you're sending screenshots, and then that's before the acquisition even happens. After that, it's invoice, payments, shipping, framing, insurance. It's hanging. There's so many things that um, there aren't a lot of people that or not a lot of advisors I've seen that hold your hand through the process. I do. I try to. But think having a way to streamline this for the collector, but also for other art advisors to use that don't have the capabilities to hire a full-time staff and or a full-time uh, registrar. Not only that, to have a registrar that is trained, and that is, you know, very important. So for me, I've spent a lot of time handling my own shipping. It has uh, absolutely affected my deal flow because I can't move on to the next deal, especially with the collector, until that deal is complete, until that work is hanging on their wall or it's shipped, whatever it might be. So that process requires a lot of diligence and upkeep. And honestly, it just is like the worst part of the business that people want to outsource. So that is a very important part of Romulus because it is solving a problem uh, that absolutely needs fixing that can be fixed. And I know there's a couple other companies that do it, but me backing this company, people know me, people trust me. I think that's a very important part to know that I will see your, your client's painting from start to finish be seen, you know, in their home and same with collectors coming through and saying, I just bought this. How do I get it? You know, what's the deal having that, that handholding experience. Absolutely. And, um, you know, a lot of other non-art um, small businesses, um, particularly through the pandemic where everything was, you know, being done from home rather than from the bricks and mortar shop, people who make like, um high high-end cakes and confectioneries and when I, I i listen to a lot of stuff on the radios i'm sure you do and uh, speaking to these people and it's so important to all of them from from the very low end to the very high-end luxury goods um you know i received a package the other day from hermes in in paris and, and and honestly i if you buy it in harrods I would say that the experience of getting this beautiful box and opening it, it's come all the, and it's got Rue de Faubourg on the front, you know, as a so it's quite exotic when it arrives. Opening the box up, and the box is quite plain, but inside it's so beautiful and it becomes an experience actually opening that up. And there's a lovely little card in an envelope saying, congrats, you know, hope you enjoy your your perfume or whatever it is. And I, I know that a lot, I know a lot of art logistics companies, I know that Sotheby's with their high-end clients, they put a bottle of champagne and two glasses inside the packing case. So I, I wonder if you could comment on whether that, it's not just the, um, you know, the diff, the the nuts and bolts parts of packaging this stuff and making sure it arrives unbroken and safe in the house, but the actual logistics becomes part of the deal. 
Of course. It's, you know, so much of it is client relations and making people, a huge thing for me is making people feel very good about a deal. Everyone who's involved in a deal needs to walk away not feeling screwed in any capacity. And for a lot of people that are buying expensive works and it's their first artwork, the bottle of champagne helps, of course. I um, I love I love giving very personalized gifts to my collectors when they make these huge purchases because it's something so special to them. And I think though, there are a lot of white glove services out there for shipping and logistics and stuff, but the collectors I'm focusing on, the artworks I'm focusing on aren't particularly uh, multi-million dollar artworks necessarily. Okay. Those people buying those have experience buying those they know, you know, that that will be taken care of. This is for someone that buys a $10,000 painting and isn't comfortable spending $2,000 on shipping. So, so they need, they need a few options. They need like a little bit more of a, um, all right, how do we do this, but not crazy expensive, but so that it's still safe. They want to feel taken care of in that sense. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I'm just looking around my own room here, actually. And I'm looking at, I'm at the kind of level of, as an art collector where I buy something and probably the frame tends to cost at least the same as the work. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to the day because, you know, it's very, very important how you frame the work. I'm looking forward to the day when the work becomes more expensive than the frame, <laughs> if that makes sense. But I, I guess that's a kind of an analogy to what you're saying that, you know, whether you're dealing with high end works on the secondary market, a Picasso or something, um, or whether you're dealing with, um, you know, works by ultra contemporary artists for, for for collectors that are very, very interested in these artists for for often social reasons. You know, they identify with them. Um, and um, but those kind of works, it, it, it can be an issue, can't it? That balance between paying a lot for things like framing and the logistics, the packaging, if you're going to post it and the actual cost of the work itself. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, people don't realize if it's an ex if it's a heavy work, if it's a bit, you know, if like there are certain things that it's more about information. What I'm providing really when it comes to logistics is information and giving a helping hand to people that advisors or gallerists that need it that can't don't have the resources to hire. But it's saying, for example, you should probably not ship the work framed. You should probably ship it to your destination and then frame it. Yes. And don't do glass, do, you know, UV plexi, you know, just these sorts of things, because, you know, and this sort of goes back to art collectors and the art world and transparency and accountability is a lot of collectors, a lot of my collectors, even before working with me, were definitely taken advantage of. I think that when you're new to an industry that is so unf yeah, unfamiliar to you and unfamiliar to many other industries, you think paying, you know, $2,500 for a frame is fine, but that's not how much the frame costs. So I think having someone say, this is okay, is, is going to be a very important part and get those new collectors in because the other two parts of Romulus are education and a social component. Mm -hmm. So it is about outreach and getting collectors or prospective art collectors in, because mm -hmm. I think, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up, I didn't see a lot of artists or people in the art world like me. Now, you know, of course, it's a different story slightly, but it was a very male dominated industry and a very white straight male dominated industry um, on in all sides. So also back to me being an undergrad, I didn't know what options were ahead of me. And I thought that entering the art world, being an advisor, working at Christie's or something, you do need this sort of prestige or pedigree to make it. And it's the same thing as artists feel, as collectors feel. And 
I work almost entirely with first generation collectors. They're, they did right. not grow up with their parents collecting and they are creating a collection for themselves and their family. So they do need the, um, the understanding that they can be part of this game. The new collectors can be involved. And the ones they get in and like play the game, not the game in the sense of the market game, but it's not this chaotic, like um, free for all, that there are actually, there can be some reason and, and transparency within this, this industry. I think that's really commendable. I think it's fantastic what you're doing. And so, so it's kind of, it's just really interesting that, that you're, you're working at that, what, what the market would see at the lower end, but I hate that term lower end, you know, you're actually working with the grassroots and creating something together with the, with your collectors and artists, which is really, really worthwhile. Um, and um, you, you spoke about those other, uh, we spoke about the logistics and then you've got, you spoke about education. Could you say something about how that might work with the, with Romulus? Of course. So education, so there's three central, you know, focuses, education being one of them. So that will be in the form of summits. So I'm in uh, uh, Dubai, I'm going to Abu Dhabi for the Forbes 3050 summit, where I will go and learn about how these sorts of day-long conferences are and then I will use that and apply it to a day-long conference a crash course on how to be an art collector how to interact in the art world and I will have people I work with in the art world have these sort of very transparent and honest conversations with people that have questions because I think again that's a major issue other points of education will be um, a dissemination of news of artworks of artists that you know I think are really great and that will be on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube, things like this to teach about art history. And then the other part of it is a social platform, which will be these in-person events, sure, but it's also going to be an online forum, which will create communication and connections between people within the art world. So right now there isn't really something that exists that allows for artists or collectors to say, hey, am I, this is the scenario I'm dealing with. Am I being taken advantage of? Or, you know, um, or, oh, I just bought my first artwork. I'm so excited. Whatever it is, it's an anonymous and vetted forum that allows people within the entire art world ecosystem to communicate, give advice, create this sort of community that allows for honesty and transparency with, and yeah, accountability. That's my whole thing. Because if a gallery is not playing by the rules, if I'm not playing by the rules, if no one is safe, and I think that that's um, going to be the biggest part of it is it's just going to encourage our the art world to do better. And that will be in the form of um, an app, will it? Yeah. So the whole thing is an online system. You log yes, in, yes. You, yes. you have a membership. It's yeah a paid membership and you're able to communicate and then you're able to receive you know, and send out logistical type communications. So the forum will be an online for chat forum where the users can 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 prefer to remain anonymous. Um, and, uh, yeah, they are anonymous. and you'll be kind of checking and vetting in case there's anything abusive or, you know, et cetera, that, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, uh, but, and but it's to encourage more transparency. You know, this, this dealer is 
um, this this galleries approached me and they're, they're they're offering me a contract where they take 70 I take 30 is that good <laughs> that sort of question exactly I want everyone to feel like they have a place to go with trusted people and they're not just posting on reddit or anything like that and I remember when I was considering grad school programs I went on reddit because I wanted to know if institutions like the IFA or um, Columbia were worth it essentially for me to wait another year and yeah. honestly pay 10 times the price <laughs> if that was worth it or um, I guess other fees is in there too and yeah we or, go I was just thinking <laughs> of the same thing for us and our fees yeah <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's worth it and <laughs> we, we do yeah go on sorry no I was just saying I reached out to my network and asked a bunch of people and I could not have been happier with Hunter's program. I thought it was unbelievable. I'm so grateful I did it. It's changed every part of my life for the better. And I wish I had had like an ability to post something and have people give me that feedback. Mm -hmm. Even when I was an undergrad said, Hey, what, what are my options for jobs? Because mm -hmm. I don't know what they are and have people give me advice, but none of that existed. Yeah. And it's really necessary. Absolutely. I mean, my experience of education, um, I used to go to my son's school careers day and I had this little desk and it had the art business on it. And people would come up and they say, you know, oh, my daughter really loves um, or my son, my daughter really loves art. But what 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 is the art business? And I said, well, what what careers do you think there are in the art world if you want to go into that? And they say they tend to say, oh, you know, maybe if, luckily I might end up I'd like to work in Tate. Or, or the National Gallery or the British Museum, and it's all public sector. And the only thing they seem to be told by, by their careers is possibly auction houses, but they knew nothing about commercial galleries, uh, art advisory, art insurance. They didn't realise there's all these other jobs. And the reason they don't know that is not in the careers books. It, a lot of people who teach art history don't like anything to do with the market and standard business anyway. So there's a kind of bias against that anyway. Um, and, you know, it kind of opened a lot of people's eyes when I said there's all these other things out there, you know, so the MA up business that we teach that actually came about because Sotheby's that used to be our owners, and I, I'm not going to go into that now, but when we use the brand name and we're connected with them, but we're not owned by them anymore. Um, they, they, they said that all the Sotheby's students that are coming to no, no, all the people that we employ. They come from the Courtauld, they come from great art history institutions, but they know nothing about business. Can you create an MA which bridges them into that world? So that's kind of where our program comes from. And I just wanted to say, Rachel, that that we we, you know, we do a lot on art law and ethics. So we have a mission to encourage ethical behavior amongst our students, whether or not they then go and play in that way, I don't know. But we all understand like exactly what you're saying that it still remains a very untransparent world and i think your your romulus company sounds as though it's very much on the right right track to do something about that which i but which i might i and i think all my students and colleagues would would strongly agree with just as we're coming to the end of the time now you're in dubai you've been to the art fair can you give us any feedback on the experience yeah of course i so I I attend many art fairs. This one is a smaller, obviously it's a you know a regional art fair, and I'm here for, as I mentioned, a Forbes conference beginning tomorrow in Abu Dhabi, which is the women's 
under 30 are basically matched and mentored by women on the 50 over 50 list. So this was a must attend for me. I was very excited. And I looked at my calendar and I saw that Art Dubai was the weekend before. And I couldn't have been happier because, you know, I, I've actually never been to really this part of the world. And the fair itself was was excellent. It was contained. There were really three three major sections. One of them was digital. Um, it was a beautiful fair. And a lot of artists I saw were complete discoveries to me. I didn't buy anything for collectors, but I also didn't arrive until day three of the fair. So um, it might've been a different story on opening night, but I was really able to just gain a little bit more perspective, meet some gallerists. There were a lot of actually London-based galleries there and it was, it was great. I mean, it was, it was excellent. I think what I also was surprised about was there was a focus, such a focus on digital art, which was something I learned a lot about while yeah. being here. And I think that in terms of it being like the cutting edge of art entertainment, you know, it's the, the UAE in general sort of being very much at the forefront in its own ways when it comes to this, especially with, you know, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, a stone's throw. I'm going to see that tomorrow. I'm very excited. I thought it was great and it has potential to be a phenomenal fair. I think um, it's far. So that's going to be difficult to get Americans to come to. And there were no Americans that I saw or interacted with. And that's hopefully will change the next handful of years. I have to ask this question because some of the listeners will be very interested in this. Obviously, there you spoke earlier about um, marginalized groups in society, LGBTQ plus. It's, um, we 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 know that the that that someone like Dubai isn't hasn't got a great track record for its tolerance of a lot of these marginal groups. Did you did you see any of that at the fair? Is did you feel there's any kind of censorship of types of art or subject matter or artists or whatever? Or didn't you feel that that was visible? It's a difficult it, question because you're sitting in Dubai, obviously, so you don't necessarily have to answer. Yeah. it. You know. I mean, I think, you know, from what I'd heard, you know, about Qatar, I, I, just in general about the Middle East, I think obviously there are some strong misconceptions about what it is, what the liberal sort of mentality here. I, I haven't, hard to explain because I actually don't know that much, but I said, I'm here with someone who works in entertainment here. And she says that it's very open and accepting, mm -hmm. but I didn't recognize many of the artists. I don't know what their backstories were. Mm -hmm. I think it played it safe. It wasn't as um, maybe open as like FIAC is, for example. I remember, you know, there's nudity everywhere and it's yeah. definitely a risque fair comparatively, but it's a conservative fair. And I think that, um, you know, they, they play it safe in that sense, but there was... Mm. Nothing that really stood out to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so, um, Rachel, we're coming to the end now. Uh, I, I just wondered if you, I have a question here, any tips for aspiring art advisors, but might be nicer if you, if you can just speak to people of your own generation or maybe younger, uh, even people coming into that world now doing undergraduate degrees in art history or MAs and, and give them any advice on how to approach this world, which, as I say, is is not is a little bit hidden from career services, as I understand it, across the world. I think um, 
I'm very grateful for my experience having worked at all of these different institutions and getting a little taste for everything. I, I highly recommend that. I highly recommend living and working and experiencing different parts of the world. I recommend using the Romulus Forum when it's up and running. Um, I'd say uh, for aspiring art advisors, whether they be you know undergraduate students, I personally don't necessarily think you need to work for another advisor or be declaring yourself as an advisor uh, and have a certain skill set. I think you need to distinguish yourself as what type of art advisor you might be and or what type of art advisor you want to be. I think that is really important. When I mentioned, I work with collectors that are, again, either buying their first artwork or they're you know very prolific collectors, but all of them are high net worth individuals that are very much in interested in growing a collection and they you know spend quite a bit each year. I think that I am very lucky in that sense. I think that I've done a lot to keep my clients and whatever you do in the art world, just understand that it is a tricky place to be in, in any sector of it. And maintaining integrity, accountability, honesty is the only way I survived and was able to get to the successful place I currently am. And it's the only piece of advice, no matter where you are, if you're at a small gallery and they're having you do some weird side, the like backdoor deals, or if you're, you know, at an auction house and you're DMing people, poaching them for artwork. <laughs> I know that happens. Mm -hmm. um, it is just about being a good person at the end of the day. That's lovely to hear. And it reminds me um, the previous podcast um, with, with another art, art, young, you know, young art advisor, um, Michaela Milikuri. She, she said exactly the same thing that. Oh, know, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and um, when she lectured to my students, she said, "Be just always choose to do the right thing and always be open and honest because your reputation depends on that and you will be tempted sometimes. Uh, but if you do that, you can get down, you can get stuck, <laughs> if you like. You can. Yes. The art world is, so, is relatively unregulated because relatively it's quite small financial transactions compared to everything else going on in the world of business. Um, so it it's just in, it's just lovely to hear both of you saying that that is a key tip. Just be honest to yourself and be honest and open with your clients. Absolutely. I think um, the other thing I was going to say is it is, it is a really small world and your reputation is everything, like she said. And I've yeah, I've actually never lied to any of my collectors, which a lot of people don't believe. But even if it is something as payment has gone through little white lies, because I've seen other advisors do it relentlessly and just to get the deal done and I don't know how they keep track of all these lies honestly I certainly couldn't so I just am like nope truth through and through again with this accountability thing where if I mess something up I am letting them know that you know this is not done because of me or whatever it might be so don't lie to your collectors the butt, stops here. The butt stops here with me and again it's that's the nice thing about being you know a small team or or your own art advisor as opposed to part of an art advisory group um so Rachel thank you so much for giving up your time today and I, I wish you luck with the um with the the next event which is in Abu Dhabi which is where you're meeting these older women am I right in saying or older men and women that are, are meant, meant to be mentored and younger women um I have a few meetings lined up with potential collectors so hoping again to 
to spread it, to, especially to women collectors. I, I only have a few women collectors right now. I'm really excited to, to get some more. Absolutely. And of course, that's something that is growing. I did some recent research, which hasn't, hasn't actually been published yet. It was launched at Sotheby's last week, but the auction house. But um, we um, th these reports are based on what's going on in the art world and demographically. And there's quite a lot of evidence that there are more women, HNWIs, who are choosing to collect art. So I think for people of yours and Michaela last week's gen generation as art advisors, hopefully you're going to have a lot more people that you can pass identify with, you know, coming into that world. So let's hope that that, that continues. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Rachel. And uh, maybe maybe speak again to see how your company's running in a year's time. That sounds great. I would love that. Thank you for everything. This was so fun. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rachel.